Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the True Crime Podcast, where we cover Canada's most notorious serial killers of all time. And today's episode is definitely no exception. Now, I am going to warn you, this episode does contain a lot of gore and sensitive subjects, so consider yourself to be warned. Our story begins with Wendy Isetatter on the night of March 23rd, 1997, who was a prostitute with heavy drug addiction. While she is walking down the dark alleys in the east of Vancouver downtown, known for its major problems for its drug overuse and poverty issues, Wendy spots a red pickup truck approaching her. As the window rolls down, a creepy-looking guy offers Wendy a ride back to his place with the exchange of money and drugs. Wendy, being heavily addicted to cocaine, agreed to the deal and hopped on his truck. As soon as she arrives, she notices how messy the place was, which she did not admire. is the guy caressing her hand and hovering around her and suddenly he snaps handcuffs on her left hand and continues to stab her in the abdomen. Wendy, in retaliation, stabs him back for self-defense and attempts to escape his place. She sees an old couple in a car coming towards her and asks them for help, and they drive her to the nearest local hospital. Wendy was suffering severe injuries with a punctured lung and three liters of lost blood. Few hours later, that same guy walks into that hospital with some wounds, and the hospital staff immediately become suspicious when they find the keys for Wendy's handcuffs in his pockets, which they then use to free her. Staff are now concerned, and they call the police. The guy was then charged with attempted assault with a weapon and forcible confinement. However, he was only released on just a $2,000 bail, and within nine months, the Crown dropped all charges against him, as they later explained that Wendy's statement was not reliable due to her history with drug addiction. Wendy Isotetter was not Robert Picton's first victim. Better known as Canada's most notorious serial killer, Picton was convicted of second-degree murder in 2007 of six women. The lengthy investigations began in 2002 that led to numerous discoveries of his barbaric crimes. Located just 30 kilometers from downtown in Vancouver, he skinned and slaughtered his victims at his pig farm. He had confessed to 49 killings to a police officer posing as his cellmate and regrets not killing another due to his sloppiness, as he wanted to have an even number. Now, Robert did not have the best childhood. He was born on October 24th of 1949 in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia. His household family consisted of his brother, David Picton, his sister and his parents, Leonard and Louise Picton, through his fa- though his father was not very present in his life. He was mainly raised by his mother, who worked relentlessly to provide for the family, but had strange tactics to raise the kids. His parents owned a pig farm in Port Coquitlam, 
15 miles east of Vancouver where they raised slaughtered and butchered livestock. Picton was not the brightest, he did not do well in school, and was not popular amongst his peers, as he reeked of pig and manure. Following his parents' death, Robert, alongside his siblings, inherited the pig farm that his parents owned, and began selling parts of the land. His siblings ended up starting a non-profit charity named Piggy Palace Good Time Society, where they claimed would hold sporting and service organizations. Conversely, the institution held countless rave parties that featured prostitutes. Now that we know a bit about his background, let's view the notable events throughout the case. Fast forward to April 1999, the Vancouver Police Board posts a $100,000 reward for any information regarding the missing woman. In February 14, 1991, Vancouver held its Women's Memorial Day annual march, targeting police investigations regarding missing women from Vancouver's downtown east side. Then, the RCMP in Port Coquitlam inspects Picton property for firearms, as the media have reported discovering personal items belonging to the missing woman on February 5, 2002. Two days later, Picton was charged with a weapons offense, and, in, and on the 22nd, he was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Later in January 12, 2007, Picton's trial finally begins as the Crown and Defense Attorneys present 129 witnesses and 1.3 million pages of documents are spawned. On December 9th, jury finds Picton guilty of six counts of second-degree murder and sentences Picton to jail for life with no chance of parole for 25 years, two days later. Now let's dig deeper into each of the steps that led to his imprisonment. First, the preliminary inquiry was held in 2003, where Wendy Isotetter's story was introduced, explaining the details of her case. Additionally, Two other incidents were added. In 1998, Laura Mulshenner, a detective, received a call from the police tip phone line stating that Picton should be investigated of suspected women's disappearances in Vancouver. And in 1999, Canadian police have yet again received a tip that Picton had a freezer filled with human flesh on his farm. However, no search was conducted. Moving on to the trial, it began on January 30th, 2006 in New Westminster. Picton pleaded not guilty to 27 charges of first-degree murder in the Supreme Court of British Columbia. The voir dire phase of the trial took most of the year to determine what evidence might be admitted before the jury. Reporters were not allowed to disclose any of the material presented in the arguments. On March 2nd, one of the 27 counts was rejected by Justice James Williams for lack of evidence. On August 9th, Justice Williams severed the charges, splitting them into one group of six counts and another group of 20 counts. As he explains that trying all 26 charges at once would put an unreasonable burden on the jury, as the trial could last up to two years, it also would have had an increased chance for a mistrial. 
on January 22, 2007, the jury trial of the first six counts took place in which Picton faced first-degree murder charges in the deaths of Frey, Applesway, Hoffman, Jonesbury, Wolf, and Wilson. The evidence displayed in the trial as of February 20, 2007 included lab staff testified during the trial that about 80 unidentified DNA profiles, approximately half male, half female, have been detected on evidence. Items found in Picton's trailer loaded .22 revolver with a dildo over the barrel and one round fired boxes of .357 Magnum handgun ammunition, night vision goggles, two pairs of faux fur-lined handcuffs, a syringe with three milliliters of blue liquid inside, and Spanish fly aphrodisiac. Videotape of Picton's friend Scott Chubb saying Picton had told him a good way to kill a female heroin addict was to inject her with a windshield washer fluid. Second videotape, Associate Andrew Bellwood mentioned Picton killing prostitutes by handcuffing and strangling them, then bleeding and gutting them before feeding them to pigs. And lastly, photos of contents of a garbage can be found in Picton's slaughterhouse, unveiling the remains of Mona Wilson, a victim. Now, the Crown argued that he that the um, evidence established that Picton often lured vulnerable drug addict women prostitutes from their usual work area to his farm located around 30 kilometers away using bribe money, drugs, or both. However, the defense responded to the Crown's case by depicting that Picton's farm contained an abundance of chaotic activity that other persons, Dina Taylor, Pat Casanova, have actually utilized Picton's farm to murder other women without partaking in any of the criminal activity. Additionally, defense argued that Picton had scored relatively low on the verbal intelligence test operated, implying that his statements were unuseful, as he simply wanted to impress his alleged cellmate, who turned out to be the undercover officer with such unsophisticated efforts. Moreover, the defense also claimed that Ellingson and Bellowood's testimonials should be invalid invalidated given their drug addiction and criminal history, rendering them of unsound mind. And lastly, the defense denied the forensic evidence as it did not support the Crown's theory. Robert Picton was eventually convicted of second-degree murder on all six counts with no possibility of parole for 25 years. Now, the pertinent laws for this case definitely vary, but the most relevant include Criminal negligence, that states everyone is criminally negligent who is in doing anything or in admitting to do anything that is his duty to do, shows wanton or reckless disregard for the lives or safety of other persons under the Criminal Code of Section 219, Subsection 1. Causing death by criminal negligence, which states that every person who by criminal negligence causes death to another person is guilty of an undictable offense and liable, under the criminal code of the section 220. Homicide, that states a person commits homicide when directly or indirectly by any means. He causes the death of a human being under the criminal code of section 220, subsection one. Murder, that states culpable, mur culpable homicide is murder where the person who causes the death of a human being means to cause his death or means to cause him bodily harm that he knows is likely to cause his death and is reckless whether death ensues or not. Under the Criminal Code 
of Section 229, Subsection A, attempt to commit murder that states every person who attempts by any means to commit murder is guilty of an undictable offense and liable under Section 239, Subsection 1, bodily harm and acts and emissions causing danger to the person states that every person commits an offense who discharges a firearm at a person with intent to wound, maim, or disfigure, to danger the life of, or to prevent the arrest or detention of any person, whether or not that person is the one at whom the firearm is charged, under Section 244, Subsection 1. Aggravated assault that states everyone commits an aggravated assault who wounds, maims, disfigures, or endangers the life of the complainant under Section 268, Subsection 1. Forcible confinement that states everyone takes a person hostage who, with intent to induce any person other than the hostage or any group of persons or any state or international or intergovernmental organization to commit or cause to be committed any act or omission as a condition, whether expressed or implied, of the release of the hostage, confines and prisons forcibly seizes or detains the person, and in any manner utters, conveys, or causes any person to receive a threat that the death of or bodily harm to the hostage will be caused or that the confinement, imprisonment, or detention of the hostage will be continued under Section 279, Subsection 1, under A and B. Now, this is definitely not a easy uh, case to digest. There's a lot that went down in the trial, a lot that went down throughout the arguments between the Crown and the defense. And while Robert Picton was only charged on six counts, Allah continued to believe that um, he should be charged for more on a higher degree. However, it is harder to prove a first-degree murder and a um, dangerous serial killer such as Robert Picton could be just let out onto the streets if for some reason the first-degree argument did not win. Um, therefore, the Crown kind of settled for the second-degree murder charge to stay on the safe side because at the end, they would be getting the same amount of um, punishment between the first and second degree. So um, the crowd definitely did go for the right decision. Um, as it is not, then again, it's not easy to prove a first degree charge murder. Um, and he was only charged on six counts, but he did. Oh, he was responsible for all 49 missings of the women that were missing in Vancouver. Oh, thank you.